Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from New York are Johnny Frank, partner, and Kat Nolan, senior consultant at Stone Turn. And today we're going to be talking about compliance program certifications, a topic that they addressed in Compliance and Ethics Professional Magazine. First, Johnny, Kat, thank you for taking time out of your afternoons to talk to us. Thank you for having thank us. You. Happy to have you. Uh, Johnny, why don't we start with you? Um, the DOJ has been calling for certifications of a compliance program as part of settlements. Uh, many in the industry or profession are very disturbed by the notion, but you're not. Uh, can you tell us why? Sure. You know, the critics worry that CEOs and CCOs will face liability and that it's going to dissuade CCOs from accepting the role. Uh, we're not we're not worried, quite frankly, because the certifications are not new. You know, Sarbanes-Oxley, which is over 22 years, requires a very similar certification. Uh, that one is for CEOs and CFOs uh, to certify the effectiveness of internal controls over financial reporting. And that has not resulted in lawsuits. It has not dissuaded people from becoming uh, CFOs. So uh, we don't anticipate there to be a concern. And quite frankly, I've been attending several conferences and the CCOs themselves, when you talk with them about the benefits, uh, they've not really expressed the concern that we've been seeing from some of the critics. Hmm. Interesting. So um, Kat, what's been the track record for certification so far? Have they helped or led to disaster, including compliance officers being wrongly charged? We have yet to see these certifications lead to disaster. Um, in fact, I would say we have only seen them enhance the power and prestige of the compliance function because it even reinforces risk ownership throughout the company, um, especially at the first line of defense, the revenue generating function within companies. Yeah, I could give you uh, an, an example. Um, I have certified as, I, I've, served, I, I've been a monitor um, and one of the aspects of being a monitor is asking the company to certify before the monitor certifies. Um, and when the company is unable to certify, I guess that's the only, I wouldn't call it a disaster, but negative thing is that if the company is unable to certify, uh, then the monitorship gets extended. And generally speaking, no one wants the monitorship extended despite the added resources it tends to bring to the compliance department. Absolutely. So for an organization needing to certify, what steps should they take? Our article outlines five steps in, in much detail about what companies should take uh, do in order to certify to compliance program effectiveness, but I'll quickly summarize them point by point here. Um, so step one, we would say companies should select a framework to develop certification criteria that they will quote unquote grade themselves against in order to identify significant gaps in their compliance program. The second step we discuss is how companies should conduct a scenario-based compliance risk assessment, and that's to identify and assess significant risks for key control activities within the company. Um, then, considering the certification criteria developed in the first step, the third step we talked to is how companies should assess the design and operation of these key control activities to identify and remediate deficiencies within the program. 
The fourth, fourth step will be companies implement the sub-certification waterfall, which in general terms is an accountable owner throughout the organization certifies to the compliance program effectiveness within their business areas to give a holistic view of the compliance program overall. And the last step is companies should arrange for internal audit or even a third party to test the compliance program independently um, to just give that extra certification behind um, the compliance program review. All of which seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, so let me follow up with you, Johnny. We don't have time to dig into them all, but let's take the first two. Uh, first, in your article, you, you two say that to select a framework and criteria, is there that much flexibility and how do you decide which one is best? There's a lot of flexibility of frameworks to leverage. There's COSO, there's the Department of Justice, Criminal Division, um, Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, which makes sense. Uh, there's the SEC's and DOJ's FCPA Resourcement Guide. To tell you the truth, all of these frameworks, while they have their differences, tend to include five co common elements. One is the control environment. The second one is to have a risk identification and assessment uh, process. Uh, the third is when you have, once you've identified on a residual basis uh, the the risks that are, are that issue, uh, to have control activities. The fourth is uh, testing and monitoring of that risk response and control activities. And finally, things do happen. So it's like having the fire department uh, to have an incident response and remediation um, process in place. And I think it's a great line of having a fire department in place because yeah. we know despite all the plans out there, there are going to be problems and being prepared to respond to them is key. Um, Kat, a second, you said identify and assess significant risk and scenarios, which sort of builds on where you're likely to have those fires. Is this the same thing as risk assessment or do you see this as something different? We see this as, yes, the same thing as a risk assessment, um, because periodically performing risk assessments uh, of significant, to identify significant risks within the company is just a cornerstone to an effective ethics and compliance program. Um, and I'll turn it over to Johnny to add a little more background here. Yeah, I would say a couple of things. First of all, with respect to risk assessment, what we find the weakness of risk assessments is that they're not scenario based. So it's one thing to say corruption is a risk assess, is, is a risk. That really doesn't do you much good. You, you need to identify what are the various scenarios in which my company might uh, participate or be a subject or a victim of corruption and then to uh, attack that. The other thing I would say is that the DOJ really expects companies to look at past misconduct and prosecutors will consider misconduct from, from years ago, uh, especially if it involves a, a similar misconduct uh, or, or players. Um, DOJ will also, with respect to that misconduct, determine, look at whether or not the company's conducted a root cause analysis, made enhancements to its compliance program, and then do they build those lessons and new things back into the risk assessment uh, process. And I like one of the things you said about thinking through the scenarios, because it seems to me that's a great way for organizations to 
sort of role play how they would respond and also form a much stronger basis for training rather than say training about anti-corruption as law or HIPAA as law, you know, to be able to go through what's likely to occur. That's that's right. Uh, and, and a game that we have, we suggest to companies and everyone loves it, is something that we call angels and demons, where you'll see a uh, scenario, let's say, at a competitor, uh, and then you get people together and they come up with the various scenarios of on the on the uh, demon side, how will you commit the same uh, crime at your company? And on the angel side, uh, what do you have in place uh, to prevent that situation from occurring? Or another game that companies play is the perfect crime scenario, where again, you're really trying to get people to be thinking about scenario, not just the risk themselves. One of the thing that gets criticized is the sub-certification process. Can you tell us about it and what the basis of the criticism is? Sure. The, the, the basis of, of the criticism is that you um, people feel that people would just sign off and then you're relying upon sub-certifications and just sign-offs and it's not really uh, meaty enough. Um, one of the ways to attack that is to have what we call as a evidence-based sub-certification. So, You'll certify that the program is effective, but then in your own document, you'll have to keep uh, notes of what is what is the basis for making that sub-certification. Uh, and we find that when you, you if you can produce that to the government or if there's a challenge later on, it makes that sub-certification that much richer. Well, anytime you can document things, obviously it's a, it's a big, big boon uh, when dealing with the government. Well, Kat, Johnny, thank you for sharing these insights with us today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turltop from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.